Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, January 26, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us for the first time, Against the Grain, national journal columnist and all-around Washington wise guy, Josh Kraushar. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the Commentary Podcast. Thanks, John. Long-time listener, first-time caller. So I'm excited <laughs> to be here. Um, Noah was pointing out just before we went on the air that there's a big piece in the New Republic, uh, which itself is a sort of slightly comic thing to say, paying attention to the New Republic. 3,000 words about how, no, no, if you really look at the charts and you look at this and you look at that, school closures and the schools and everything really didn't have much of an effect in the 2021 elections. Similarly, I was noting that in the uh, New York Times today, uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, clown uh, Paul Krugman um, has a piece about how, you know, inflation, it's, it's a narrative that inflation is bad. Uh, you know, the, the, b- bouncing off um, Biden insulting uh, uh, Steve Ducey, uh, excuse me, um, uh, Peter Ducey. Uh, can you blame him for saying it? Why is inflation proving to be so much of a, a liability? Here's a gigantic chart. Look, in 1979, inflation really was a liability. If you see, here's a g- giant drop in the chart. But right now, inflation, you know, it's bad, but it's not really. And, you know, people are just talking. They're being talked. It's being talked at them. And consumer sentiment is extremely negative. It's the power of narrative that everything is Americans are very down on the national economy. Blah, 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 blah. Now, um, doing a thing where you say that people aren't feeling what they're feeling is a very interesting um, pundit. You can understand it like it's like, uh, no, what everybody says is happening isn't really happening because I don't want it to be happening. But um, the whole thing about inflation, Josh, is that it either is or it isn't an issue based on whether people feel it. And telling people that they're not feeling what they're feeling is gaslighting. I mean, it's the literal definition of gaslighting to say no, or what's well, not really, but gaslighting isn't really about feeling. If you say to someone, you're not really worried about inflation, you're just being hypnotized by Fox News, who's really the hypnotized person there? John, perception is political reality, and this habit of talking down to voters uh, doesn't help anyone uh, on the Democratic side politically. I mean, all you have to do is look at the polling, look at look at, and frankly, how Democrats have moved on, on the issue of inflation. Where you know, six months ago they were denying that this was a this was transitory, this was just a temporary state of affairs, and, and even the the top economists in the White House have now, you know grudgingly acknowledge that this is going to be here to stay for the long term. So the spin that this isn't real or it's only, you know, you know, in the growth, you know, empty store shelves are just a, a temporary factor of life and people are overreacting to it. You know, that's not how people are reacting. That's not how their own base, frankly, is, is reacting. And, you know, Bi- Biden is sort of experiencing the political version of 70s style stagflation in that he's raised expectations with his base so much, right? And then and, and saying things that aren't true and, and ended up having reality insert itself that he's getting a, a real the kind of double whammy from, from people that are disillusioned on the left. And then the, the middle of the road voters, the independents, the swing voters, the suburbanites who are kind of more in tune with reality and are seeing that something's amiss with, with the country's economy and just the, the state of play. 
Look, I was I was 18 years old in 1979, and it was much worse than it is now. But inflation is much worse now than it's been. I mean, you know, numerically, it's much worse than it's been in 40 years. But I mean, basically, we haven't had any inflation for two generations, and now we have it. And saying, oh, you know what? Let me look back in the rearview mirror. When I was 17, it really wasn't so, you know, it was much worse then. As Abe was saying, it's like saying to people living in New York now, well, the crime in New York was much worse than the 1970s. It was, but I was on the Times Square subway platform yesterday, and I noted that everybody is now standing in the middle of the platform. I'm telling you, I was there at rush hour, and people are standing, they are leaving, uh, you know, mostly people tend to stand within five to ten feet of the you know, of the gap where the, where the train comes in, everyone has moved in. Everyone is worried that someone is going to run up behind them and push them on a subway track. Well, that's saying, not transitory. <laughs> you know, that's a human reaction to actual events. Well, trying to um, present inflation as a framing issue or a perception issue is completely analogous to what the new New York City Mayor Eric Adams had said about crime in New York and on the subways last week, which was that you just perceive the danger. It's not really danger. This is the same thing. It also it all of it sort of strikes me as a last ditch effort to deny problems, because first you try to say it's going away. And now you say, no, 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 no. Don't believe your eyes. Believe me. Right. And then when people stop believing you, then you just hate the people. Because these idiots don't understand what you're trying to communicate to them. Those boobs. Uh, back briefly to the to New Republic piece, which is very festooned with data, public polling, uh, internal polling, focus groups. It makes a pretty comprehensive argument. It's called the bogus claim that school closures will doom Democrats by Rachel Cohen. Uh, and it deserves to be read because, in my view, uh, where it falls short is it's effort to deny the existence of an enthusiasm imbalance against COVID restrictions. And it tries to claim that school closures weren't a problem. CRT was a problem. Terry McAuliffe's claim was a problem, ignoring how it manifested in New Jersey as well, where Terry McAuliffe was certainly not an issue. Nevertheless, it tries to make the claim that there's just sort of a, a split in the country here, and there's an ambiguous approach to, to this sort of thing. Um, but it's not ambiguous. Because the people who are done with COVID, as it were, which is now embroiling the commentary class, are far more enthusiastic to vote their preferences than people who are complacent with the current regime. They are literally complacency typifies their political outlook. That doesn't manifest in enthusiasm at the ballot box. There's, a, there's also a kind of Potemkin uh, tone that's developing among the people who want to both continue to deny reality about inflation, about crime, about how we need to move past COVID restrictions. And I'll give an example, a local example. And Josh, you might have seen this one. There were uh, the more the most radical fringe group that's part of the Washington Teachers Union tried to make fetch happen here in D.C. and get high school students to walk out to, and demand a return to virtual learning. But the whole thing was just was adults, you know, telling kids, oh, you've got to do this. It's for your health and safety. They got about two dozen kids to walk out of Banneker High School and got a local news crew to cover it. It was ridiculous, though. Like these <laughs> these kids are out there with signs. There, there really was no kind of organic energy behind this. It was an effort that meant to mimic what's happened at a few other 
uh, deep blue state urban high schools across the country here and there, given the Omicron variant, but there's no real enthusiasm for it. And I think, you know, the other Potemkin moment in D.C. yesterday was was images of Joe Biden wandering around the southwest waterfront going to Jenny's ice cream. And everyone's like, oh, look what a nice, normal thing. It's just a regular president walking down the street doing normal things. No, I saw that. And I'm like, what are you doing? Get back to work. There's so much to work on. And so even these kind of photo op type things and these these sort of forced activist uh, things that the teachers unions are doing are falling flat. People are seeing that this is not something that the vast majority of people, even in blue cities, want any longer. Yeah. By the way, I mean, being in D.C. with Christine, I, I, you know, I've been downtown a handful of times in the last month and the city is empty. The downtown is empty. The word malaise gets thrown around. It feels like malaise, just driving around DC, walking around downtown. No one's at work, right? They're vagrants on the streets. Uh, you know, it, 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 it has this feel of, of this, this kind of almost an apocalyptic feel where when, when are we going to get back to people working from the office, supporting businesses? And, and, and that, that's got a way on the psyche of, of, of your average, you know, not, not just you know, swing voters, but people living in Washington, blue city, blue state voters who see this uh, and, and have had their inter- routines interrupted and, and want to know when we're going to get back to normal. Well, you know, there was a there was a sort of um, gobsmacking uh, series of tweets yesterday, the day before by by Chris Hayes, uh, MSNBC's Chris Hayes, who makes five or six million dollars a year, in which he said, I don't know what people are talking about, about how things aren't back to normal. You know, I rode the subway. I played a pick. I played in a pickup basketball game, I guess, at like in the, on the famous courts at West third street and sixth Avenue in, in, uh, in Greenwich village. Uh, things are back to normal. It's like, I know you're a big leftist and you know, you work for in these times and everything, but you're a hugely rich guy. Uh, and ask, you know, ask a small businessman whether things are back to normal. Ask a kid, and I know he has kids, sitting, you know, on a cold floor outside of uh, on the playground at, behind school, eating lunch, putting your mask on after taking a bite of food and putting your mask back on, whether things are back to normal. Things are not back to normal. They're, this is a bizarre uh, you know, uh, Chip Diller moment, you know, that's the National Lampoon's Animal House. That's Kevin Bacon saying they're saying, you know, all is well, all is well, while the marching band comes and flattens him, you know, or or Frank Drebin in, in uh, the Naked Gun uh, as the fireworks factory is exploding behind him saying there's nothing to see here. All is fine. There's nothing to see here. What on earth? Yeah, I think, Noah, you're right that this is somehow uh, a kind of um, Stasi moment. It's like they're going, no, 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 no. It, we're not. It, East Germany it isn't over. I'm going back to. A, I work for the Stasi. I'm. I need to get, get to my desk and do my job, being a secret policeman. This was a real thing in East Germany right. when East Germany literally ceased to exist, and people were going back to work at their East German communist functionary jobs. And they showed up at the office building and it was locked and they didn't know what to do with themselves. What I mean, frightens me more yeah. hmm? is the possibility that these people and others are saying sincerely, well, things are normal enough. This is good enough. We can we can we can go with this. If I can go out to a restaurant and play a pickup basketball game and yeah, so everyone's in masks and yeah, kids are sitting on a cold floor. But if 
But this is, come on, what did we expect? It's a global pandemic. This is normal enough. The, they That's are. More They're horrifying. saying that. They're yeah. saying that. But I don't think they speak for their own, even their own coalition, much less the rest of the country. We had two data points this week from pollsters, Pew and Gallup, res- respectively, that outline the malaise that Josh is talking about. First, from Pew, 29% of Democrats expressed satisfaction with the state of the country, which is down 18 points since March. Now, if that's not a screaming red flag for a Democratic presidency, the, the numbers relating to the state of the virus in this country should be absolutely terrifying. From Pew, um, when thinking about the pandemic, Americans are split over whether they think the worst has come, with a majority, 50 percent, saying the worst is yet to come, which complements a finding by Gallup last uh, on the 20th, released on the 20th, taken last week along with 20% of adults who currently say the pandemic is approving and 22% who are saying it's about the same, 58% believe the situation in this country with regard to the pandemic is worsening. Now, talk about perception. I don't think that's, that's a, a position that is based in any understanding of the data as I see it, but it's a real idea in the body politic that things are getting worse and are going to continue to get worse. And you can't talk people out of that much more. In fact, if you have any instinct towards political self-preservation, you should be doing everything in your power to talk people out of that. But they're well, not. You, you're saying you should talk them out of it or you're saying that out of you pessimism to... about the state of the, the pandemic? Yes, absolutely. Well, but see, that's where you start getting into. We we're talking about malaise, right? So the famous malaise speech, Jimmy Carter's speech uh, in September of uh, August of 1979, in which he never used the word malaise. Uh, what's interesting was interesting about that speech is, is it was an effort to do what you were talking about. It was he was playing a kind of national analyst. Uh, reading Christopher Lash and looking at data and all this and saying, basically, Americans are just not feeling very good about things. And um, the implicit idea was it's kind of their fault. And, you know, you, you've been kind of suckered into being negative and you should say something nice about America, he said in the course of the speech. Uh, why? Because it was obviously harming his presidency on the one the larger picture was America's in a bad national mood. I want to hear to talk about it and help uh, get you out of it. But the but the the thing that people took away from it, the reason that it was one of the great political blunders in American history is that precisely as Noah has been saying for a week about Biden, it was him saying, snap out of it. You're making me look bad. Snap out of it like I this is it's not fun being your president right now because you're in such a crappy mood. What are you in such a crappy mood for? What? So inflation's at 18 percent. What do I get? I, it was it was it was a, a, a really interesting moment. And I think this is where it gets interesting. What you're saying, Noah, which is on the one hand, people think that the the pandemic is getting worse and it's not. But if you go to them and say the pandemic's not getting worse, then you're not reflecting their mood. You know, politicians need to reflect. Well, it's not just talking it up, especially talking yeah. it up based on any sort of predicate. It would be talking up the state of the country. And acting like it, advocating for the withdrawal of some of these mandates, right. advocating for a return to normalcy and not saying, well, return to normalcy, but you got to mask up. you got to test anytime you leave the house. you got to maintain social distancing, communicating that the state of affairs isn't good while also saying, no, it's, it's actually better. People pay atten- more attention to actions and rhetoric. Josh, what do you what do you make of? Uh, look, we know we have all the we, we know all these data points, right? 
presidents don't actually get more popular in their second year in office like that. There's almost no history of anybody improving their second year. They improve in their third. They improve in their fourth. Certainly Clinton and Reagan both like blew their fourth year, you know, like out of the water um, and, and that kind of thing. But uh, there is no record of anybody improving their record in the in the in the second year. But uh, if you're a politician and you're facing this uh, negative national mood, what do you do? What what do you do? I mean, the the classic rule would be politicians need not to not to be Marie Antoinette and say you're not feeling what you're feeling. That's where we started. What what do they do? What do what do they say? Well, the the difference between Carter and and Biden is that it it seems with Carter wanted to get the country back in a better mood and it was trying to diagnose it prescriptively. Biden, there's an element of the Biden administration that seems almost to want to continue to keep the country in a bad mood because it's really the public health bureaucracy, the the, the staff uh, who are very cautious uh, that, that are at top levels of the Biden administration that actually want to keep a lot of these measures in place because they strongly believe that ideologically. And, you know, speaking, jumping off Noah's point, um, the NBC poll that came out this past week had some really interesting data points because they showed that basically what's left of the Biden base is progressive women. In other words, you, you saw younger Gen Z uh, millennials losing a uh, great deal of support with Biden. His, his numbers with millennials and Gen Zers down to the, four, the 40s, huge drop. Huge drop with Black voters into the 60s when it comes to approval. Huge drop with Hispanics down to the 40s. The only sub- subgroup that is sort of hold, holding the line are, are, are more progressive women, the Warren Coalition, if you will, of, of 2020. And these are the folks who are the most ideologically wedded to sort of the public health regime, to, to you know, you will be endangering my kid's life. You will be endangering my grandparents' life if you take away these regulations. And I think that, and then they are disproportionately represented at the top echelons of, of this administration. And on social media, you should add, like it, the white progressive women on Twitter are dominant when it comes to these discussions of, of lifting mask mandates, et cetera, et cetera. You see, you see that play out in real time all often in advanced well, we, degrees i don't know what happens to you when you go to grad school i went to grad school and i didn't come out a lunatic but apparently everybody else i did. got more conservative personally but right. <laughs> i am um, you know an interesting fight in this regard is happening right now in in new york state uh, i think people sort of know uh, a judge ruled that uh governor hochul's um uh, statewide mask mandate was um unconstitutional uh and lifted it said she did not have the, the authority to impose it. And I, we talked about this yesterday or the day before uh, that emergency powers have been granted to Andrew Cuomo that were retracted by the state legislature. It was those powers that he used to put down, put on a statewide mask mandate. She doesn't have those powers. The judge said she is overreaching. And um, immediately certain school districts, particularly in Nassau County, lifted the school mask mandate for a day and then the you know another judge decided to stay the first judge's ruling until there could be a hearing on the matter on friday um so they are literally playing ping pong with these kids had a day without masks today they're back with masks although some places are saying uh you know anyway so people again are losing the thread the fight is now the fight in itself. Uh, are we going to, you know, 
are we going to stop wearing masks or not is a is a cover for who's going to control the conversation in New York state about whether or not we are hawkish about COVID or we're deciding we're going to like take our chances and, and go with it. That's a very interesting political reality. It just strikes me that even though the progressive women thing is real, even though as someone just pointed the morning consult, according to the morning consult, latest poll on COVID 68%, of people who are vaxxed with a booster are very worried, very to somewhat worried that they will get sick from COVID-19 within the next year. That's uh, 66%, 68%. Now, I'm vaxxed and boosted, and I got Omicron, and I wasn't sick, but I got it. Um, how worried are you? Very, 22%, somewhat 46%. Um, so that's the bait. That, that is who is still insisting. But these are people who have done everything that they were told to do. They've done everything they were told to do, and now they're worried sick that they're going to get COVID. They're still going to get COVID. I mean, that attitude, I don't think, is the attitude of, of the sort of person who's going to drag themselves over glass to go vote in November. That is the attitude of somebody, people who are broken. This has it's broken so the them. Prescription you're, has broken them. The prescription you're making writing is is perfectly intuitive. It's that these people who've done everything they're supposed to do are the people who are paying attention to the public health apparatus. Everybody else isn't, or at least is only marginally attached to these kind of guidelines, especially because they shift so frequently. So those are the people who are 100% focused on it, and they're being driven crazy. And the prescription for a party interested in its own self-preservation would be to cut those people loose, right? At least contradict them publicly. But they're the malaise. The malaise isn't the red state people who want to who want to take their chances. They're the malaise. They're the I'm I'm vaxxed. I'm I'm double vaxxed. I'm boosted. I'm wearing masks. I'm still going to get sick. I don't, you know, as, as Abe would say, they're, 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 they're most, the best thing they can say is our reality right now isn't so terrible. Maybe it's not so bad. I mean, I don't know, but well, I and just, that, yeah. that I'm sorry to interrupt, but that acceptance, yeah. the acceptance of, well, this is as good as it's going to get. We just have to, this is the new normal, which is the phrase that comes up a lot among those folks. It's not enough to just say, oh, well, they're crazy and, uh, and politically that's, this is stupid for the Democrats to pander to them, because these are the same people who are actually actively lobbying against getting back to any sort of post-COVID normalcy. And I, I sent you all on our text chain, um, you know, a tweet of a woman who's, who's sent, whose kindergartner was sent home with this weird worksheet, you know, which had safe and unsafe. And on the safe list were things like going to the doctor, covering my cough, washing hands, playing at a distance of six feet, checking for fever. So you had to color in the safe stuff with green. Then in red, unsafe, you had to color in, you know, not wearing a mask, touching my face, hanging out closely with friends. This is bizarre. This is a kind of weird effort to make the new normal, starting with the very youngest, most vulnerable population in this country, fearful of everything. Not, there is no risk assessment going on here, and it's being imposed in institutions. And I think that's where the breaking point is. And that's why we saw all that turn in Virginia. And I think it's really going to be a, an issue here because eat quietly, even some Democratic parents, if your kid comes home with a worksheet like that and you happen to be 
tracking the numbers and the risk for very young children, you're going, what the hell is going on here? And why are we the only developed country in the world who is masking two-year-olds? Everybody else isn't doing that. Why? And we can't get an answer from our public health apparatus. The CDC has not explained why it is they're recommending continued masking of very young children. They've never explained it properly to the public. And of course, people are going to start to rebel. And they should. At this point, they really should. Josh, you're you're a student of um, of midterms, and I mean you've been writing about politics in a granular way for fifteen years now. Uh, okay. So um, if I'm if I'm right, the single most important thing in a midterm election, because the electorate of the midterms is a conditional electorate, it's not a it's not a habitual electorate. It's a conditional electorate. Is enthusiasm. Negative, positive, however you want to slice it, almost more negative than positive. Democrats had it beyond belief in 2018 to send the message to crush Trump to finally express themselves again after 2016. Republicans had it in 2010, had it in the Senate races in 2014. If the Democratic Party is is these 68% of people or the base of the Democratic Party is these 68% of people who are still terrified of getting COVID. How does that translate to electoral enthusiasm in November? It's not good. Um, and, and what makes, I think, Biden's situation compared to recent history more precarious is that he has a lot of problems with his base. He is not a cult of personality figure like Donald Trump was for the Republicans or like Barack Obama was for the Democrats. Um, I mean, both of them had turnout issues relative to the opposition in their own midterm elections. But when you look at Biden's strong approval numbers, I mean, it's like 15 percent of the country strongly approves of Joe Biden. That's about half, if not if not less, of where Trump and Obama were at the respective moments in time during the midterm cycle. Um, that That is really, really problematic because, you know, in Virginia, for example, we just had an election where you know, Democrats showed up, Democrats turned out at, at historic levels, but the Republican opposition and Youngkin turned out their voters at an even higher level. What Biden is, is dealing with is, 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 is worse than McAuliffe. He, he's in a situation where his base may not show up to the polls for the very reasons we've been talking about. And yet his number with independents and moderates and suburbanites is as low as Obama was in 2010 and is as low as Trump was in those swing categories in 2018. And so, we have to remember. This, this could be yeah. worse. This could be worse. I mean, I, I'm not saying it will be, but if, if Biden can't improve, if he, you know, if he, if he continues to essentially not encourage, and, and really he has a lot of control. I mean, he, he has control of his own party. This is a psychological issue for a lot of voters in the Democratic side. They, they need to hear from Fauci. They need to hear from the public health experts that everything's okay. Like they, they need to hear it from the experts. That's how these uh, kind of liberal technocratic folks operate. And by not giving that to them, it's almost, it's really worsening his predicament at the worst possible time. It's interesting because um, on the one hand, it could be worse for him than for, you know, Trump and Obama. And on the other hand, Republicans need a lot less need to perform a lot less well to crush them anyway. Um, uh, you know, remember, Republicans won 63 seats in 2010. They won 52 or 54 in 1994. But they're starting at 213 out of, you know, with a 218 majority. The House uh, Republican Campaign Committee is looking for 35 
a 35 seat win in part because they're starting from a much higher base. If they got 35 seats, they would have the high, they would have, there would be more Republicans in the house than have been in the house since before the second world war, I I believe, or something like that. So not only is Biden in a worse position, but the Republicans don't need to, don't need to shellac him the way they shellacked Obama to crush the hopes and dreams of of progressives everywhere for for and 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 for for uh, several election cycles i think cuz that's not going to you know that's something it takes two cycles to to fix you know a majority that size you know i i think there in a general way there's the big democratic problem here is that they don't have in any issues and i think the republicans have several that attract nonpartisans to their side, right? There are a billion people out there who will say, look, I'm no fan of the Republicans, but what's going on in schools, this has got to stop. Or the crime in my, this is out of control. I'm, I look, I'm not a Trump guy, but that, but that's, but you know, inflation, look, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, liberal, but you know, this is These restrictions, there's no, I can't think of a single issue like that, that uh, the Democrats have been pushing for that could get someone who is not particularly partisan to say, well, this is actually a personal thing for me. I get it. I'm going to have to throw in with them. Remember that in 2018 and 2006, actually, Democrats had their successful midterm elections um, by not being particularly partisan, by going with less partisan candidates, candidates who were more appealing to the center, even in sort of, you know, in Republican districts, military people, I, l- largely, I would say, very strong efforts to recruit people from with military backgrounds to make the point that they weren't just a, you know, a, a, some panty waste, you know, academic type. Um, and, and that was very successful. The Republican Party, of course, is finds itself in this interesting position in which the sort of the Trumpian right wants to use uh, the 2020 election and even January 6th a little bit as a kind of purity litmus test thing to either primary people who they decide were, you know, insufficiently loyal to Trump or to sort of keep this matter uh, on the front burner. And for the Republican Party, the best thing they can be in terms of running to get to that 35 or higher number is relatively opaque and just let the Democrats hang them. The issue is them, not us. You know, the issue is the the issue is not the Republicans and Trump. The issue is Democrats have had charge of the House, Senate and the presidency for two years. Look at the condition we're in. It's time to switch gears. And Abe's non, you know, nonpartisan appeal thing. uh, I'm not saying it depends on that, but it sort of depends on Republicans not being dominated by Todd Akin and Sharon Angle and uh, those are, of course, Senate candidates on House candidates, but but not being dominated by the you know, sort of the nut, the nut brigade, uh, which allows uh, Democrats to kind of shift gears or at least shift attention. Well, that was what but, Joe Biden was going for in his press conference. And Josh, I think you noted that at the time that it was sort of this really ham fisted, transparent effort to transform the dynamic of the midterms from a referendum into a choice. And he goes, you know, what what are Republicans for? What are they for? What are they? They don't tell me what they're for, except in private when they do tell me what they're for. But they don't know what they're for. What are they for? To which Republicans responded with, I think, an affirmative 
uh, agenda item, which is essentially rolling back the COVID regime. I mean, that is that is something that they are very much for explicitly uh, for and, and, and say in, in very granular ways how they would execute that strategy. So it's not as though they haven't presented voters with a choice uh, that would undermine perhaps the referendum angle on the midterms, but it's one that they are committing themselves to. So all in all, then, the, the issue here is the Democrats are talking themselves into paralysis, depression, malaise, and, and, um, and uh, having no answer to how we're supposed to move forward. And it's a sort of an interesting position. Now, now you're going to have them fighting, as Kathy Hochul is, as Tish James, the attorney general, is in New York State, fighting rearguard actions to maintain pretty easily discreditable uh, restrictions that, by the way, can be used against Democrats nationwide. I mean, it's not in New York State that, you know, having powerful governors and attorneys general trying to keep kids in masks no matter what, that can cross state lines. I mean, a Republican in Idaho can use that just as readily against, you know, sort of liberals, Democrats, you know, uh, the you know, big sit, whatever you want to call it as, 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 as make it local that nationalizes the issue. Masking statewide mask mandates are not statewide issues. They are now national issues. And the party that embraces them is going to have to defend keeping it going. Right. I mean, uh, Josh, am I, does that comport with your sense of it? Yeah. I actually expect that in blue states, this is going to become an intra-party issue more than a Republican versus Democrat issue. So the New York governor's race, Tom Swasey, congressman from Long Island, moderate, is running. Now he's not getting, you know, it's early on. People don't know who he is, but he is running to Hochul's middle to the right on issues of COVID and crime. And I think that message, just like Eric Adams had a you know, surprising traction in the New York City mayoral primary on, on, on some of those issues. You know, I think Hochul is vulnerable to her right in a Democratic primary, especially this is a statewide primary. Like you saw what the I saw the um, ousted Nassau County executive, uh, a moderate on Fox and Friends, criticizing her own party uh, on Fox yesterday. Um, this this is the I mean, d- Democrats are, are being blinded by their own bubble. And there are a lot of Democrats, you see this on social media too, with you know, Ezra Klein and, and Iglesias and Nate Silver, they're really growing more outspoken against a lot of these rules and regulations and the permanent bureaucracy. And I think that's going to play itself out in, in some of these blue state primaries where the Democratic officials haven't moved to, to loosen and, and end the mandates and the regulations. So, guys, we've been talking about inflation. Inflation, as, 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 as we said, is at a 39-year high and rising. Uh, we got the COVID variants. Uh, we got the stock markets being whiplashed by both. So there's never been a better time to rethink your portfolio mix. And today, one of the smartest investments you can make is to diversify your portfolio. And to do so, use fine art. According to the city, art significantly outpaced the S&P 500 from 1995 to 2020, which means when the market drops, a well-diversified art portfolio might not. The Wall Street Journal called the art market one of the hottest on earth. Not to mention the ultra-wealthy have been diversifying their portfolios with artwork for generations. So now with Masterworks... You can too. Masterworks is democratizing the art market by allowing everyday investors to own a piece of iconic paintings 
from artists from Picasso to Banksy at an affordable entry point. So while making great art is difficult, investing in it is easier than ever. Even better, Masterworks is giving commentary listeners priority access to its newest offerings. Start building an intelligent portfolio today at masterworks.art slash commentary. That's masterworks.art slash commentary. See important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Okay, so I don't want to be one of those guys who, you know, decides that they know better than the experts and the epidemiologists and everything on uh, how, uh, you know, how things work um, uh, in terms of uh, the epidemic, counting and where the epidemic is and, and all of that. But um, I noticed something in a number last night that I think is like, it's, it's not like, which is the pill you take in the matrix to see the truth? Is it the red pill or the blue pill? I can't remember. It's the red one. Okay, so I'm not saying that I've been red-pilled, but something fishy is going on here, and I want to talk about it, okay? BNO Newsroom, which is, has 500,000 followers on Twitter and basically collects COVID information, reports uh, U.S. COVID update, nearly 3,000 new deaths, cases continue to drop, okay? 540,000 new cases, uh, but in ICU, 25,744. In hospital, 146,681. New deaths, 2,997. So, like, geez, remember, like, deaths were like going down in the summer before Delta or whatever. Like, they were they were down to like 150, 120. There were 3,000 deaths a day. That's worse than ever, right? Or that's like that's like height of okay. That number is wrong and false, and it's something is going on here because I looked up, okay? According to this, 3,000 people a day are dying from, from Omicron because 99.5% of all cases now in America, according to the latest uh, survey data, are, are Omicron cases. Um, However, Omicron is less fatal. It's less dangerous. It's you know, it's only danger. You know, it's only even dangerous to the unvaccinated. It's really not dangerous to the vaccinated at all. They can get it, but it doesn't make them sick. Okay. So I looked up how many people die every day in the United States, and there is no central number, but it's anywhere between seventy five hundred and eighty five hundred people die every day. So according to BNO Newsroom, and the New York Times, I think, has the number somewhere in the low 2000s this morning. Someone could check on that for me. 40% of all the deaths in America are from COVID. That is what this stat from BNO Newsroom is saying. 3,000 out of 7,500. That's not true. That is not true. That is being reported as though it is true. That is literally the people are dying and deaths are being attributed either because they have COVID, they have Omicron, but they died from something else, or reporting is flawed or something. But you can't tell Americans simultaneously that if you're vaxxed and boosted, 
and you get Omicron, you're not really going to get very sick, even though that's the truth. And then tell them that more people are dying from COVID now than have ever died from COVID before on a daily basis. Something is very hinky here, and I don't know what to make of it except to say, you know, you go, this is the sort of thing that makes you go back in time and say, do we believe that all the recorded deaths from COVID were deaths from COVID or, or how much of it were deaths with COVID and that the COVID was not the killer? Because that matters a whole lot in terms of understanding how much danger COVID poses, particularly if Omicron is something that tens of millions of people are going to get. So as a result, everybody is going to have it or have some form of it. And then people are going to die the way they normally die. And those deaths are going to be attributed to COVID. So am I being red-pilled? Am I, should I be more cautious in what I'm describing here? Because I don't want to be one of those people. And I'm not Alex Berenson. I'm not saying don't ever take a vaccine, which is now where Alex Berenson has gone in his mania. But does, can anybody uh, sort through this with me? Well, I mean, I think the biggest challenge to, to the, the idea that COVID itself has not killed as many Americans as it's been purported to do comes from the rise in the raw number of American deaths over the, the period of the pandemic. Um, whatever you, you, you find when you go into the in individual cases, there simply is this huge spike in death numbers uh, that, that start, started happening in, in 2020, right? Right. Right. So that, right. So that, that, that makes the case for the previous death numbers being correct. These numbers cannot be correct. Omicron can't be, can't be uh, milder and killing more people at the same time. Even if the case, even if the case rates are up, that doesn't compute. Well, it can for the unvaccinated population still right. pose a very serious risk of death in a way that it doesn't for the vaxxed. And I, th I mean, separating those numbers is what any responsible public health data analyst should be doing for the public every time they report numbers from now on. And actually, if you look at the way that European countries report COVID data, there's a lot more context. And even how European news outlets report COVID stories, there's a lot more context given when they're discussing children's risk, when they're discussing deaths and hospitalizations, they break that stuff out. And that actually going forward, we should be doing that. And public health advocates should be saying, look, we need to make sure that we're showing this distinction. That actually would reinforce the power of vaccination for people and get away from this idea that people might have incorrectly that getting a vaccine means they'll never get some variation on COVID. But we knew last week, Kathy Hochul, again, to mention Kathy Hochul, announced that there were, I don't know, 5,000 people in ICU, so something like that, where, you know, 5,000 people had been admitted. 2,400 of them had been admitted due to COVID and 2,700 of them had been admitted while having COVID, but not for COVID. So right there, we already had sort of like a 50-50 split in COVID's presence in people being hospitalized who were not hospitalized from COVID. And uh, the issue is how these data are going to be used or manipulated. Because 
you know, if, if patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel, you know, sort of like uh, uh, alarmist numbers are the last refuge of the COVID hawk. That's why, you know, we have this issue with reporting cases when Omicron cases among the vaccinated are, it, that would be like reporting colds, uh, you know, among the, the general population. Then we have the head spinning thing, right? Which is, um, and this is where, you know, the world of the, uh, we need to, you know, the unvaccinated are being uh, pilloried and they're being mistreated and they're being, you know, it's, it's terrible. It's monstrous how people talk about the unvaccinated. Uh but yeah, they're they're like 13 to 15 times more likely to be hospitalized as a result of COVID now from Omicron as 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 a as an as a vaccinated person. And that's you can only say that's not true if you think that all the numbers are fake. Now, I'm worried because that's why I say I think there's something wrong with these numbers. But um you know, yesterday there was announced there's a 29-year-old guy who needs a heart transplant, he won't get vaccinated. And Brigham and Women's Hospital in Massachusetts will not give him a heart transplant unless he agrees to be vaccinated. And he is basically apparently going to sacrifice his life uh, because he is such a strong anti-vaxxer. Um, and there was this outpouring from the weird populist I don't know what you would call them, sort of like the anti-anti-anti-vaxxer. I don't know what you call it. Uh, it's like, how mean? How can you do this? They're, you're consigning someone to death. There are all kinds of protocols that heart transplants require. You know, they won't, they won't give a heart transplant to an obese person because the comorbidity, you know, your body needs to be able to not reject the heart. You have to be relatively healthy in other ways this is a very risky procedure there aren't a lot of hearts to be had and you need to give people the best shot to have it and there are all kinds of things you don't you can't have you can't be a smoker you can't be this you can't be that and so not being vaccinated seems to be totally a rational way to go because if you get if you're not vaxxed and you have a heart transplant you're in the hospital and you get covid you could get incredibly sick and then the heart is lost to somebody who you know who could make better use of it than you who's going to get killed. And yet the entire world of this Tucker Carlson populate, I don't know what you even call it is like crying crocodile tears over this guy who won't be vaccinated and how it's how, how he's being sacrificed on the, on, on because of vaccine fundamentalism or something like that. I'm not, I'm just blathering here. So somebody else say something. Well, again, it's context because anyone who knows anything about transplants and risk assessments for those knows that there are certain conditions that will will prevent people from being allowed to get their transplanted organ. And, and a lot of that, some of those are under their control and some of those are not. And this is just an example within, you know, anyone who knows anything about transplant medicine is like, yeah, this is a no brainer. Uh, just like you wouldn't give, you know, if someone has an active tuberculosis infection, they're likely not going to be top of the list for that lung transplant. I mean, there, these, this is just common. It, it used to be common sense, but everything is politicized. And there's a, I think that the, the response of the kind of Tucker Carlson viewing, you know, Jordan Peterson, uh, you know, I'm being clever showing you this, this secret world you didn't know exists and how they're trying to manipulate you. It all comes as a result of the totally understandable skepticism we have about our public health 
uh, institutions. And they are doing nothing to allay that except to scold the people who are trying to find some other means of, of rationalizing their take on vaccination and their fear of vaccination. So there's a real, you know, it's a void. There's a void there. It's being filled by people who I wouldn't suggest anyone get medical advice from, but there you have it. Also, I'm just going to sound hopelessly callous, but we're talking about a profoundly tiny minority of the country. I mean, tens of millions of people, but according to the White House, only 30 million people in a country of 330 million people does this apply to. So it's great for political debate. It's great for wedge issues and, you know, fighting proxy cultural battles. But how relevant is this to the daily life of most Americans? Fully vaccinated Americans five and up 67 percent 12 and up 72 percent 18 and up 74 percent okay at least one dose all ages 76 percent um again this is part of this whole question of why no one is singing hosannas to this from fauci on down these are the numbers that they would have wanted but they're not good enough for them. Well, according to the president himself, quote, we've gone from 90 million adults with no shots in arms last summer down to 35 million with no shots as of today. We're adding about 9 million more vaccinations each week. Now, I don't know where those numbers come from. But if the White House's own estimate is that we're talking about a population of 35 million people who are hopelessly recalcitrant at this point, unreachable, and we're going to obsess over them, and impose restrictions and mitigation measures on the vast majority, a much larger host, while we obsess over this teeny minority who isn't even paying attention to you or anyone else. I just don't, I don't understand where the math is there. Josh, let me, let, let, let me, let me bring this to a close with, 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 with an observation and see how you, how you respond to it. Biden's sitting here. It's January. It's a year after his, his, uh, his election. Um, didn't get Build Back Better, you know, uh, Ukraine is uh, a very frightening mess. Um, and, you know, his legislative agenda, whatever it is, is now very confused because voting bills have gone down. Maybe he'll revive the revision of the Electoral Reform Act and go again bipartisan instead of going hyperpartisan. Um he is standing there, you know, with 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 a year to go uh, till till this election. Is there. You know, there was that two weeks ago, everyone's like, he's got a reset. Interestingly enough, most of the people who are saying that are, of course, on our side, like, you know, it's Brett Stevens and Peggy knew he's got a reset like this is his chance. He's got a reset. Is there a reset, really? I mean, is that is there how how would a reset function i think the main thing here is that he decided like all these guys too came in to deal with an emergency right which was covid and then he dropped covid he decided that he was going to be lbj on social on 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 social issues uh george w bush lost the thread in his second term he got reelected to fight iraq and then he announced that what he was going to do was privatize social security uh what like when he didn't run that where did that come from what the hell is going on there you know it's it's and and biden came in to say i'm going to kill covid without killing america and then suddenly he's not talking about covid anymore is there a reset 
So I don't think he has many good options, but I think the first thing is to realize you have a problem as opposed to what he said in the press conference saying this was the best first year of any president ever, you know, and start focusing on the issues that voters say they care about, like build it, put, put together an inflation task force and go to, you know, shipping ports and go to stores that have, you know, you know, dealing with supply chain issues and just show you care because, I mean, and I think he even alluded to that. He said, I, I got to get out of Washington more at, at the press conference. And I think that was sort of a, a concession to the fact that people don't think he, this is the guy who won by being, you know, Grandpa Joe, by being someone who cares about uh, the average person. And he's kind of been detached from that uh, in the first year in office. So, you know, I think the first step is to realize you have, it's like, you know, an AA meeting, first step, realize you have a problem. And Talk about inflation, talk about what you're going to do, get experts together. And, and, and you know, I don't know if that's going to help the problem dramatically, but at least we'll show the public that you're concerned about the issues that they say they care about. Christine, so I think that gets to your ice cream point. Like, this yes. is not a good day to go get an ice cream cone. Particularly it really wasn't. It's also, it's also the middle of winter. Like, what is he doing going getting an ice cream cone in the middle of winter? Like, that. I know in many parts of the country, it's not really winter, but those parts don't really vote for Biden. So it's also I, I, really expensive ice cream. I think it, <laughs> it might be the same brand that Nancy Pelosi was correctly mocked for kind of waving around in her multi thousand dollar refrigerators from her home in, in California. It, it's not a populist move. Let's just put it that way. Going out for ice cream sounds like it could be very much getting in touch with the people. Not in this case. What happened to that political playbook item about how the president can't be allowed outside because he'll get COVID and Republicans will pounce? Ooh, that's good. When did that? Ha- what? Where did that go? Well, you needed. Was ice it cream. all BS? When you need ice cream, you know you can't send you can't send your aide to go get ice. You got to go get that ice cream yourself. It's very very important. Josh Crashar, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure to have you. Um, as you can tell, you know you're a little like sometimes guests are a little like Lindsey Buckingham on the uh, What's Up with That sketch on SNL. You ever watch that? Keenan Thompson's the host of a talk show. Lindsey Buckingham is always the guest and he never gets to talk. It's like eight years. Bill Hader sits there. He never gets to say anything. So I, I, you got to say a few things, but you know, I'm, I'm a logoreic. I'm, 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 I'm president Biden of the podcast. I can't stop talking and I apologize. Uh, we get many letters complaining that I don't let anybody get a word in edgewise. Then I say to Christine and Aben, I feel bad. I'm going to stop that. And they're like, no, don't. And I, I first I, step is admitting you have a problem, John. It's fine. We're there with that. I admit steps. I have a problem. Okay. Okay. I always respond to those people and say, it's his show. What? It's not my show. show. Do you think this is? Oh, my God. I always respond to those people saying, don't make me talk more. <laughs> more Let Abe. John talk. More Abe. That's what they say. That's what the people say, Abe. More Abe. That's very what people who don't know me say. <laughs> And they're going to be saying more Josh after this one. And we will have you back if uh, if you'll come back. So anyway, thank you so much. And for Abe Christine, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.